0: Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. Oh, let's move on with Gideon a little bit further tonight. It's generally accepted that to win in battle, you have to meet force with a greater force. Not in every case, I realize strategy has a big part of this, but generally, if you wanna win, you've gotta meet force with a greater force. The old cop in one of the first movies I ever snuck into, as a Pentecostal preacher's kid, we weren't allowed to go to movies, movies would send you to hell. And so we weren't allowed to go to movies, but I was a rebellious preacher's kid. And so one of the first movies I remember seeing, I think was The New Centurions, and the old cop, Kilvisky, advises the rookie cop, he says, if he comes at you with his fist, use your stick. If he comes at you with a knife, use your gun. Cancel his ticket, right, there and then. I just thought that was the coolest thing I ever heard when I was like, I don't know, 13 or whatever. He was saying the same thing, if you want to win... You've got to meet force with a greater force. You've got to escalate. How many of you remember Jaws, the movie Jaws? Um, some of you still haven't, some of you still haven't gone back in the water. There are a lot of people who simply forgot how to swim uh, when, when Jaws uh, came out. But here's my, here's my favorite scene. Pay attention. Here's my favorite scene. great. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's what Chief Brody said to Captain Quint. That's the way we generally approach challenges. Here's a big army. We're going to have to meet them with a bigger army. We meet force with force. We escalate uh, to a higher level. When God wants us to put our trust wholly in him, sometimes that principle is completely reversed. Sometimes God sends us into a gunfight with absolutely nothing in our hands. And God says to Gideon, in effect, here you are up against the Midianites. Here you are with your assembled army. Here you are ready to go. Now, Gideon, you need a smaller boat. Doesn't sound rational, does it? You need a smaller boat. So let's look at it in Judges. We'll start reading verse 1 in the 7th chapter. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon. And remember Jeroboam meant Baal will contend. In other words, Gideon, Baal's going to get you because you tore down his altar. They named him that to remind him. All the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring at Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, people are still too many. You're going to need a smaller boat. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps You shall set by himself, likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. And all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him, in the valley. Here's our geogra- ge- geographical context. This is, of course, and I don't have my um, my laser pointer, but I promise I won't touch the screen. Uh, you've got one fourth. That's right. You told me you were just going to start carrying one because I'm so stupid something like that's how I heard it but I just however that was yeah hey this is just like this is mine so we're we're looking at we're looking here at the core of Israel here's the sea of Galilee and this box here is cut out from here this is the valley of what Jezreel. Good. You're getting it. This is the Jezreel Valley. We're only going to be here another 18 weeks. So we'll know the Valley of Jezreel. Here's the Valley of Jezreel. And in this area, so much of your Bible takes place. The more you know about this area, the more you'll feel somewhat comfortable and familiar with whole sections of of the Old Testament. So this is where it's happening. We're a little bit south of Galilee. There's kind of a mountainous ring all the way around here. And then this valley So in the valley, let's go to the next one just so we can see the immediate context. In the valley, this is Mount Tabor. That's where Deborah came down and they came all the way down to the the brook Kishon here. They attacked from here and you'll remember Sisera's army was bogged down here with their chariots. And so that's where, it's almost in the exact same area except it's over on the next little mound and if you're ever with us in the Jezreel Valley, you can't miss these landmarks. They're so clear. Anybody, anybody can, can, you don't need a, you don't need somebody there to point them out to you. They're that clear. And so you've got Tabor, then you've got, this is where the Midian army, or the Midianite army has encamped. And then down by the spring, we can actually pretty much locate that down below Mount Gilboa where Saul died. You remember? Saul died right here. Anyways, right over here. In this spring area, that's where Gideon's men, they've come from this area and this area, and they've kind of rolled out of the hills, and they've all assembled uh, right here down below the others. For now, I'll, I'll get it back to you afterwards, because I'll forget next week. I'll be counting on you, Jim. Israel has assembled 32,000 fighting men, although those fighting men, their experience in war was probably quite limited, and their confidence wasn 't very high, the Midianites hold the higher ground not the they don 't have a, a distinct battle advantage, but anytime you hold ground that's higher than the than your your enemy you 're generally at an an advantage Gideon's tribes are encamped on kind of the shoulder of a smaller hill along the valley floor this uh This immediately sets the stage, but there are greater there are greater issues at play here. God says to Gideon if you could believe this there are just too many people you got too many fighters and the core in all of this is that god wants the glory god wants the glory he said lest israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me see god's people will either praise him for this victory or they will praise or boast in themselves gideon will either give honor to the lord or he'll take it for himself and human nature is such that if there's the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own works we will notice that god says that any boasting he says is boasting over me the transla- some of your translations will say accurately also against me god is really saying you're robbing me of my glory if you take any of the credit for what I'm about to do. And he creates a circumstance here whereby Israel can by no means say we did it by our own might. Israel, the nation, and Gideon, as their leader at this point, are incredibly spiritually naive and immature. You've got to step into the context and get away from this idea that we get in the scripture that God's people always had it together. God's people generally didn't have it together at all. Every once in a while, every once in a while, they get their act together and God does something great as far as the nation moving forward. But for the most part, they're really struggling in spiritual life. And by the time Gideon appears on the stage and we've had this downward spiral in the people of Israel, but also even in Israel's deliverers, We're dealing with a spiritually immature people and leader. The impact of the culture has left them spiritually compromised and deeply weakened. We are facing that right now with a a generation that is rising up. I'm not pointing a blame finger at them. The nature of what has happened within our culture has left us with a generation that in many cases, doesn't have a clear vector on what is right and what is wrong. They have been so indoctrinated by the culture that they doubt what the church or the scripture or spiritual leaders will tell them. And so we're we're grappling with a, a culture of churched sitter or what do you want to say church member or or church attender walks through our doors we no longer live under the presupposition that that person is somewhat mature in their faith in many cases they're living a life that's not pleasing to the lord they know it but they're going to do it anyways or they're they're living a life that's not pleasing to the lord but they're completely ignorant of what the scripture says in the first place or they walk through the door and they've, somewhere along the line, they've, they've jettisoned a lot of what they've been taught all of their lives, and, you know, concerning uh, the ways of righteousness. And now they're just trying to pick up the broken pieces of their lives, but they're, they're piecemeal. They're kind of choosing because that's what we do in our culture. We choose whatever we want off the shelf and then we kind of blend it all together and we make our own religion. We make our own expression of faith. It's syncretism. That's what we're dealing with. So our days are not that unlike those of the judges in that the people had blended a lot of religious ideas and this crew under Gideon was desperately spiritually immature. So God demands of Gideon and the people a great step of faith. Before the first step is taken on a war footing, God uh, gives this gelatinous army an out. He says, whoever's fearful and trembling, let him go home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Mount Gilead was just on the other side of, of the Jordan. Mount Gide- Gilead from this valley would have been um, a kind of the regional marker. People would have known where they were looking down the valley by Mount Gilead at the very end. So it's left in here for us, just for a kind of a geographical reference. He's, he's basically saying, Those those of you who don't feel like you're up to the fight get out of dodge i mean you you, you need to clear the area uh, because we're going to be fighting a different kind of battle here and two-thirds of the army leave the next day i cannot imagine the psychological effect of a two-thirds disengagement from a fighting force like that can you I mean, I put it in context this way. Next Sunday, I get up to preach, and just before I announce my Christmas text, as I'm walking to the front of the platform, two-thirds of the audience just gets up and leaves. This is the stuff of nightmares for me. Either people are leaving while I'm preaching, or I'm preaching, and I look down, and I don't have pants on. Those are my, those are my great... Those are my great nightmares. I know that might be too much for you, but that's, uh, you know, I wake, up out of those, I wake up out of those nightmares and it's like, I know I've had this nightmare before. Sooner or later, this has got to happen, right? It's like, <laughs> how did that happen? But anyways, you might be of such faith that you say, pastor, this is just an attack of the enemy and we're just gonna stand with you. I, I have to tell you, I, I would be greatly shaken. Two-thirds just walked out on a Sunday. My first church in Stockton, Missouri, just before I became the pastor, uh, went through a split where more than half of the congregation and it was all of the young in the church, half the congregation left. They went to follow an evangelist who was somewhat of a, uh, I don't know what to call him, Scalawag comes to mind or something like that. But he, uh, he was... Uh, the elderly pastor, who was um, of poor health, who had preceded me there, uh, he was just a kind-hearted, loving man. He opened his pulpit up to this guy, and this guy basically led off uh, the entire bottom half of his church. And by I mean by age-wise, not by quality or by any means. But this isn't a town of 1,400. The church split. The evangelist was gone within about three months. The, he's he. Gone down the road because he wasn't a pastor and he didn't want to lead. He just wanted to. He didn't want to hang around and lead people. And so one of the young men who had had gone with him rose up to be there to be their pastor. And I was I was in that town for four and a half years. And uh, as those years passed, I have to say the wounds didn't heal. People within the church had a difficult time because in many cases parents stayed in the church and their sons and daughters left. And uh, we tried, we did our best to bring reconciliation and, and kindness, certainly didn't go out to war with anyone, but it was devastating for the church, really devastating for a small church in a small town. I don't know about you, but if I was staying with Gideon and I watched that huge number of my countrymen going, walking past me, headed down the valley, turning either north or south at Gilead, now, that would cut pretty deep. So Gideon was left with 10,000, so you do the math. That's a loss of two-thirds. I, would, I, I, I think I would, if I could get to Gideon, I'd be an advisor to Gideon, I think I'd sidle up beside him and say, well, Gideon, here's the upside. With 10,000, we're going to be a lot more efficient than we were at 32,000 let's face it, at 32,000, these yokels were from all over the mountains here. They really hadn't fought together. They hadn't trained together. We didn't know what we had to begin with. We just have to trust the Lord. He's given us 10,000 and he's probably given us the 10,000 most efficient, best fighters and they'll take orders and Gideon, it's going to be great. I would have tried to somehow pick him up. And you you do realize when you read verse 12 in Judges chapter 7 that says that the Midianites were numbered like locusts. They'd come in like locusts. And the locusts would come into this part of Israel every few years. They would come in and it would be like a plague that fell on the people. And the locusts would literally cover the ground. And so when this language, this metaphorical language is used, basically it's telling us Midian was a huge army. They were powerful. They're organized. And 10,000 is not enough. But the boat was still too big for God's purposes. <laughs> God still just kind of backs Gideon into a corner and says, uh, we're going to need a smaller boat. And another culling takes place as Gideon instructs them to go down to the water and drink, probably at the Kishon or possibly at this Herod Spring, or Herod Spring. Those who lower themselves down on their knees to drink are called out, they're mustered out. Those that drink by lapping up the water and remaining vigilant, uh, they're retained. The 10,000 becomes 300. That's, now 99% are gone. Talk about the 1%. You're down to the 1%. And at this point, if you're one of the 300, you've got to be operating at this point on faith alone. I mean, this is like this is like the NFL, uh, an NFL team putting every player on the field, and on your side just you, and you've got the ball. They got 53 players. And you. Actually, the math is far worse. There's no natural battle plan that's not doomed, absolutely doomed to failure at this point. Can't outflank them. It's not about weaponry. Weaponry is always weaker in Israel. They never have the chariots. All the way up until the days of David, they don't have the iron chariots. Their technology is so far behind. They're farmers who go to war every once in a while. So something something supernatural has to take place. I wonder if you've ever been in a, a place in your life where you've looked at the impossibility and you've simply turned your face to the heavens and said, something supernatural has to take place here. We had a moment like that, Chris, just a few weeks ago, didn't we? We were sitting in a budget meeting and we'd gone through all of the numbers and I've got to tell you, we were, as a board, we were looking at all of this and looking at how what we needed to project for next year and wondering how in the world we were going to balance these things out and where were we going to make the cuts and how were we going to make all of these numbers fit. Um, We had a, a rather difficult 45 minutes or so, but then the Lord just kind of gave Chris a word and he just spoke faith into that meeting. It was wonderful. It was a Gideon moment. It was like, yeah, we can't make this work on paper. That was what, three weeks ago? About three weeks ago. We met last week. We met last week. We can make it work on paper now. That's just the way God is. You know, it's it's just amazing what happens if you just put your trust in him. And some of you have had your back up against the wall where you've turned your face to heaven and said, there's only one way out of this, God. You're going to have to. You're going to have to do something. He loves being put in that circumstance if you will trust him and (laughs) if your boast will be in him. If all of the glory and all of the praise is going to be his. We know in this story something supernatural is about to take place. So we look at Judges now 7, 9 and following. Let's go back to the text. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, if you're afraid. Now, this tells us again that Gideon isn't the man of valor that we have painted him to be so often. We create heroes out of All of these Bible characters, and sometimes we're not taking an honest assessment of who they were or where they were. God knew, He knew the instability of Gideon's heart. And so, what does He say? He says, I want you to go down against the camp. I've given it into your hand. If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Gideon's received signs, an angelic visitation, a spirit-empowered response by the tribes all around him who have gathered and, and surrounded him. And God says, if you're afraid, go down to that camp and take a servant with you, if you're afraid. God still knows the heart of Gideon is shaking. So I want you to go down to that camp, and if you need him for support, take a servant with you. There's just a good, yeah, so we, we shouldn't walk alone. When we don't need to walk alone. Take somebody with you. Somebody who will walk with you. Somebody who will stand with you. you know, it's, when, you're, when you're shaken up, you need, to, you need to be reaching out to people who are spiritually stronger than you. People who will walk with you, help you, trust you. Take somebody with you. People who struggle with fear don't conquer it in a day. Gideon should have been over his fear by now, as soon as the angel appeared, right? Most of us feel like if if we had a supernatural manifestation like Gideon, where an angel appears, and then the angel does the fleece thing, or God does the fleece thing a couple days in a row, most of us would say, okay, settled. By now, we're done. Fear doesn't work that way. One miracle doesn't make fear go away. Fear's a way of life, Fear is a conquered soul. Fear is a lack of faith. It's a a spiritual immaturity. And Gideon wasn't going to grow up overnight and become super spiritual. So we get a little bit of an insight into his heart where God who knows him and knows what's going on in his mind, knows what's going on in his heart, God simply says, if you're afraid, take a servant with you but go on down to the camp. And so Gideon and Pura creep into the enemy camp and here's what they find, verse 11 and following. You'll hear what they say. Afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian And came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. But doesn't that sound like a dream to you? A barley cake overturning a tent. How many of you dream rational dreams? I discovered something about dreams this week that I'd never learned before. I'll unpack it a little more on Sunday morning. But basically, when you dream, the limbic center in your, in your brain lights up more than when you're conscious. So the center of your imagination in your brain goes wild when you sleep. It's kind of like, you know, it's very much controlled during the day, but once the lights are out, it party, I mean, it lights up. <laughs> and you know what shuts down? your prefrontal cortex and that's where your logic and reason are there's also there's also a release and i I'll, i can't remember the name of the of the uh, substance release but there's a release of a substance that that not completely but effectively leaves you paralyzed because you see if that wild dream is not met by that paralysis that comes with it when you reach REM sleep or that REM sleep you go deep if that paralysis isn't there the wildness of your dream would have you running down the hallway and jumping off the banister god knows exactly what we need but if you've ever wondered how come my dreams don't make more sense because your sense is shut off and your emotions are completely released you say well that sounds exhausting the opposite is true When you hit REM sleep and you do about four times every night, almost all of us dream at least four times a night. You say, I don't. How do you know? Most of us can't remember them, but we can track them in sleep studies. Most of you will dream four times in a single night. You'll remember very, very little about it. Almost, almost nothing. But God has designed this incredible system in here. So that when you sleep, you know, the dream center goes a little bit nuts. The logic center shuts down and to make sure you don't kill yourself, you're paralyzed. Have you ever tried to wake somebody out of a deep, deep sleep and you've shaken them and shaken them and shaken them and it's like they're dead and then suddenly they come out. It's because they're in that deep level of sleep and their body is not going to respond to outside stimulus. You can even touch them with a pen. Don't try that, by the way, tonight. I can just see. There's a few of you out there that are going, huh, he's asleep tonight. I'm going to wait till his eyes are twitching. Then I'm going to check it out. I'm going, to, I'm going to test it out. Pretty wild, though, isn't it? What happens when we dream. It's interesting. It's interesting that we can't remember. We, we don't remember our dreams yet. There are a lot of them in the scripture that were directive. If God gives you a dream, that dream will be clear as a bell and remembered. That doesn't mean that everything that you remember is from God, but you can start to sort through them a little bit, because it will be clear and it'll be remembered, and we'll talk about that more on on Sunday when we talk about of dreams and angels. Verse 14, and his comrade answered, he said, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Do you see what's happening here? So here comes Gideon and Purim. They come sneaking up to the camp and they're listening. And remember, we're talking about a very small piece of geography here. And so they slip in close and they're listening. And the one conversation that they overhear is one guy saying, man, I had a wild dream last night. Cake of barley rolled through the tent, turned it upside down, it fell down flat. And his friend turns and says, I know what that means. That's, a, that's Gideon. That's a, th-. And you look at that and say, how'd you get Gideon out of that? Well, let me tell you a story. Years ago here at Calvary, uh, church was pretty small. I, I do remember we were in the new sanctuary. So it was, it was post 1990 or so. And, um, we had a couple that came to the church and they really seemed too good to be true because they had a bunch of talents and wanted to get right involved in everything else and seemed to be really church and everything else. But I had just a little bit of a check in my, in my spirit. And, um, so we didn't really engage with them. they were, they really wanted to be the pastor's best friend too like just right right now just want to be your best friend in the world and so you know I was a, I was just a a, a bit standoffish and I, I just didn't I just didn't feel much of a connection there and they'd been there about 2 weeks and they were connecting with a lot of people fast and I was hearing hey they were out with this couple and this couple we had a great time and we laughed all night and everything so you know it's great hey if they 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 love the church then I mean, then great you know see what the lord has in store for them on a Sunday morning about a week after, um, maybe about a week after they really came up on my radar, I had a, a guy, <laughs> I won't name him, but I had a guy come to me and and say, oh, man, I don't know if I should share this. I said, well, I feel like I have a word from the Lord for you. And he said, and I think I know what it means. And I said, well, I'm, I'm all ears. I don't know if I should share it. It's just one of those, it's like, hey, if you know... if. if go for it. You know, I mean, you know, we'll judge it. And he said, well, he said, I just had this weird dream and it was all about green frogs. And then we had this moment. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. He's waiting to see if I go green frogs. That's it. I knew it. I knew. We have, we got a green frog issue. Uh, I had no idea. It, it, this happens to pastors. People come up, everyone says, pastor, what do you think about that? And i I have, I have absolutely no idea. My name's not Joseph. Don't interpret dreams. If God ever helps me with that, I will. But, but then he turned to me and he said, he said, I can't really explain it. But he said, I really believe the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you. He said, this is what kind of came out of this strange dream. That there are people who are coming into the church right now who are dangerous and you need to be on your guard against them that was on a Sunday. On Tuesday, one of my close friends at the church called me. He said, we had dinner with a couple last night and we were talking and having a good time and laughing and everything else. And then, and he started listening, these things started coming out of their mouth. And he said, David, whatever you do, they're dangerous. And you say, well, that's weird. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, I still don't understand the green frog connection. You know, so for me, it's like, you know, Kermit and the rainbow connection. I just, you know, I never, never have been able to get there, but I don't know what the rainbow connection is. I'm still trying to figure that out. But when somebody says, you know, this, the Lord is speaking to me and through this strange dream, the dream doesn't have to be perfect. But if there's a sense of this is what God is saying, then we need to weigh those things. Well the, you know this guy was right on with the interpretation, and it really did protect us at a very I, I believe at a very vulnerable time. I believe that the lord I believe that the Lord just stepped in in that moment through that very strange situation and that 's what you 've got here you 've got a strange situation where a guy says I had a weird dream last night about a big barley loaf, and the other guy says that 's israel they 're going to kill us <laughs> I mean you know how do you get there except this strange thing that could be in, that could be t- you know could be turned to be interpreted a certain way, and the other guy responds to it saying, "This is surely what it means." Uh, it, it was a miraculous it was a miraculous moment, and it was so out there, so strange, so off the chain that Gideon knows now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the God of Heaven is already speaking to some of the enemy. Telling them they're going down. That's pretty awesome. Pretty amazing. God has already pre-positioned a conversation for Gideon's encouragement. You're slugging it away. You're slugging away or slogging away. Trying to get through life right now. And trying to get ahead and trying to make it. If you're walking with the Lord, you have every right to a confidence. Confidence. That he is going before you. He does not trail you in life. Saying, Oh, look at them jogging left, jogging right, mm-hmm. what are we gonna do next? He has already prepared the way before you. You know, he knows what's a year out for you. Two weeks. He knows what you need in six months. He already knows, he already knows where the path leads. Beyond this season. You turn the chapter in your life. He's already got the next one. He's the Lord who goes before us. He goes before us. I love that word before. Before. He's the lamb slain before the foundation. That tells me that the Jesus plan was the plan. From the get go. Before he called light out of darkness. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you before. I I knew you, Jeremiah. I know who you are now, but I knew you before you were even formed in the womb. He is the God who goes before us. And before Gideon marches forth with his trumpets and his pitchers and his blazing and and his torches, before he takes one step, God has already gone before him. And somebody right now said in their heart, could that be true for me? Could it be true for me? Pastor, I wish I could believe that. You see, God is not the reactor who simply responds to whatever we do. He is the proactor. And you say, that's not a real word. It's gaining traction in the Urban Dictionary now, before long, Merriam-Webster is going to adopt it. It's an adaptation of the word proactive. We look at proactive and we see it as the opposite of what, reactive. What's a reactive person like? Maybe your boss? What's a reactive person like? A reactive person, whenever anything happens, they take in the circumstances and then something issues forth. From deep within. That's reactive. What's a proactive person? They're a person that rather than reacting all the time, they've already thought well ahead in the process, and no matter what happens, they have a sense of preparedness. A pro a reactor, boom, you know what a reactor is. A reactor just blows up generally, but a proactor, they're out, they're way out in front. The, the, these words came into the, the dictionary for us really because of Stephen Covey, who in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talked about being proactive. It was a word that was being thrown around back then. It has finally made it, by the way, into Merriam-Webster's dictionary. They finally adapted it and said, yeah, that's a, we'll, we'll validate that particular word. But it means acting in anticipation of future problems, needs, or changes acting in anticipation of future problems, needs, or changes. I've just described for you the character of God. He is actively preparing for changes, for trials, for troubles, for challenges that have not even come across your radar yet. He's proactive to perfection. So let's look at his response. Judges 7, 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, I love this, he worshiped, he worshiped. Awe and wonder are prerequisite to worship. Worship is not singing songs on Sunday morning during the praise and worship segment. Worship is not about ritual. Not at all. Worship is to be in awe. It's to be in awe of God. Worship was a word that used to be in every marriage ceremony, English marriage ceremony, when the man would say to the woman, We, we don't do these vows anymore. They went out in the 1920s. But the man used to say to his wife, You're going to love this, and your body I worship. Yeah, didn't think that would go over real good. Yeah, in our culture, it's like, oh, brother, really? (laughs) Can you imagine that in a wedding ceremony? You know, almost all of the British monarchs were were married under those vows, Anglican vows. But the idea was, and by body, it wasn't just talking about her physical body, it's talking about soma, it's talking about body, soul, and spirit, everything that you are. When the man would marry the woman, he would say to her, I hold you in awe and in wonder. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the way it should be? How many of you don't feel like maybe you're quite there yet? Awe and, and wonder are at the core of worship. Where there is no awe and there is no wonder, you may have form, but you don't have worship. You may have a religious ceremony, but you don't have worship. You may have a religious... If there is not awe and wonder, there's no worship. One of the problems that we're facing is we live in a culture that is losing its sense of awe. Because we feel like we figured everything out. And we've taken away the mystery in everything. You know, people live together, sleep together before... Marriage and so the awe and the wonder of one man, one woman, and the honeymoon and the coming together in that moment where two become one. You know, we've rushed that process anymore in our culture. We've rushed that process to the point where awe and wonder pretty much lost. There, there's little that really moves us to awe and wonder. You know what's done a lot of damage to awe and wonder? YouTube. We figure everything out, somebody tells us how to do it. Also, kind of, it, it, it's, it's helpful on one hand, but I think it, it might be just reinforcing our own inabilities on the other because we lose that sense of, I'm going to figure this thing out. L- little boys, by the way, little boys have no problem with awe and wonder, little kids generally, but especially little boys. You give a little boy some type of a toy, and I promise he will take it apart within two minutes <laughs> he 's not necessarily trying to destroy it; he wants to figure out how does this work he wants to he wants to know awe and wonder, and the older we get the the more we lose that sense of and wonder. My parents teased me, as as a matter of fact, if my mother was going to be here at this Christmas, because she's reached the age now where she tells all of her stories just over and over again. This started about 25 years ago. (laughs) And at 87, believe me, all I have to do is throw a switch, and I know what story's coming up. And she's not going to be with us this Christmas, but if she was with all of my grandchildren there, she would tell them about the Christmas that David Turned himself inside out. When I was about five years old, Christmas was the biggest thing in the world. That tree, those lights, all of those presents. My parents always made Christmas huge for us. And it wasn't necessarily tons and tons of money. It wasn't super expensive stuff or anything else. But they they made Christmas huge. We had a Christmas culture we came down in the morning, there was a little bit of breakfast, there were some, there were some special things that mom prepared, which drove me nuts, because I just wanted to get to the tree. And what was a present? What's a present? A present is all, and I want to know what's inside. And some of those presents had sat under the tree for three weeks, and I'd looked at them every day. And my mother said, "Don't touch them, so I waited until she left the house, and i'd shaken them. The worst Christmas of my life was somewhere around six years of age where I unwrapped all of my gifts one day to check them out and then wrapped them all up and she She noticed that the wrapping wasn 't quite right and uh, i got i got I got really, really hammered for that one, but they talk about the they talk about the Christmas at five years old, where I was so Wound up. Have you ever seen a little boy who's so wound up he's just jumping all over the place? I mean, my whole family, you know, they they, they kinda they won't let that go. They still remind me of that. I'm I'm sixty years old, for pity's sake. But they still keep going there. So that, but that's okay. I just, you know, I take opportunities to tell people how weird they are. Now I have to say I've kind of lost the wonder. I don't care about really anything under the tree this Christmas. Any of you ever got to that point where it's like, I know, for me, it's like, do you know what I'm looking forward to? The wonder in the eyes of my grandchildren. The pleasure in the eyes of my kids. That's what it's all about. It's about the moment that you open, you didn't know, now you do. There's a, there's a little bit of awe and wonder. Magnify it by a thousand percent and you arrive at the concept of worship. I said to the staff this week, I said, you know, sometimes I, I'm not sure I really want to go to heaven. <laughs> That's how they responded too. Have you stopped and thought about what you're going to do in heaven without apps, (laughs) Facebook, PlayStation? None of it. What are we going to do? I I have to tell you, I know it, I know we're not going to sit there strumming harps on a on a cloud with with halos you know i'm i'm with larson on that in the far side that's certainly i love the i love the the far side the he doesn't write anymore but larson's far side where he's got the angel strumming his you know he's strumming his harp he's got his halo on kind of crooked and everything else and you know dot 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 there's a little text box up there and the angel is thinking i wish i'd brought a magazine i just i love <laughs> i absolutely love that because every once in a while i've had that thought when i get to heaven when I got to heaven, what's it gonna, what's it gonna be? You know, a street sweeper on the streets of gold. I don't know. What, what's, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do? What's, what's heaven gonna be like? And, and the Lord's planted this in my in my spirit, and it's good enough for me. I don't have to know the rest. And maybe you've had a dream. Eh, keep it. It's, it's okay. It's, That's for you. It wasn't for me. I just hold on to that dream. But for me, if I step into heaven and I walk from there on in a constant sense of awe and wonder, that alone's heaven for me. That alone's heaven for me. The Bible says that we will forever worship him. What is behind worship? Awe and wonder. We will never have the full mystery of God Figured out. Always that sense of awe and wonder. When we lose the wonder, we've lost the basis for true worship. In one of Ravi Zacharias' book, I meant to bring it down here and just read it. In one of Ravi's books, uh, "Recapture the Wonder." It's a great book. It's just a great book. He talks about the red knot. Who starts down in Tierra del Fuego, which is South America, down on the very tip? They call it the Land of Fire. And these birds that are about the size of a robin, you know, they feast on on the, these little mini, miniature crabs and baby crabs. And they work the seashore and they they gorge themselves on them for a period of weeks, and then they fly. They fly north all the way across um, South America, a couple stopping places along the way, into Delaware Bay, and then beyond Delaware Bay, Delaware Bay, all the way up into the Northwest Territories, where they will nest, eggs will hatch, they'll be there for a period of, I think, three months, and at that point, with the hatchlings, you know, fed and fattened up, They take to the skies and they fly the exact same route all the way back to South America, Tierra del Fuego. 20,000 miles. These massive swarms of red knots. Does that amaze you at all that God created a little bird like that? And they don't deviate. They don't say, let's go through Hawaii this year. (laughs) You know, they, they don't, they, they don't riff on the theme at all. They fly the same course every single time. If there's no room in your heart for awe and wonder, you truly are a cynic. What fills your heart with wonder? G.K. Chesterton said it so well. He said, the older we get, the more it takes to fill the heart with wonder. And only God is big enough for that, he says. I'm far afield, but I didn't want to miss this teaching moment awe and wonder and faith rises up when we capture awe. If you're standing in awe and wonder, amazed at God, you will trust him for great things. When I grew up in, in the church, we were known for our chorus singing. The Anglicans, the Presbyterians and, and the rest of the, in, the inns across town, there, there were a whole bunch of them. Um, Different different mainline churches. They all sang out of hymn books. In some cases they didn't hardly sing at all. They had a choir and an organ that did most of their music and they listened. But in all of those churches, they did in our church we had, we were looked down on because we were a little bit, you know, lower strata, but we sang choruses. And we'd sing, you know, a chorus, you know, four lines, eight lines. We'd sing it over and over and over again. Anyone else grow up with choruses like I did? you know still those choruses still go over and over in my mind little little chorus we sang in the pentecostal church growing up that i've never forgot and i've often just stopped and thought about the guy who wrote it and what it meant to the people who sang it back then was a little chorus that said i get so thrilled with jesus anyone remember, remember it i get so thrilled with jesus every moment of the day i get so thrilled with jesus he's the truth the life the way I get so thrilled with Jesus; He satisfies my longing heart. I get so, uh, or soul. Uh, I get so thrilled with Jesus; He's the one who made me whole. You say, "Well, oh, that's awfully simple." Yeah, I, I forget all of the rest of it. Just I get so thrilled with Jesus. When's the last time that you were thrilled? Thrilled. Not well. I I love the Lord. Thrilled. Thrilled with Jesus. I remember my in my grandfather's church I remember them singing that until you felt like the the little chandeliers they had hanging under the balcony were going to fall down. They had the weirdest orchestra in that church. It was a come come with whatever instrument you have anytime. You don't have to practice or anything. Just come and play with us and it was the strangest cacophony of sound you've ever heard in your life. We had we had like tromb. we had like four guys with trombones and two people on violin who only played the top string. Just. <laughs> And they had, and a marimba. They had the Anarimba. they had the weirdest assortment of instruments in, in my grandfather's church, but they would sing that they sang that right into my soul as a little boy. And I still find myself wondering, well, what would it really take to thrill me? I'm 60 years old now, so I'm getting, getting to that point where it <laughs> takes more to thrill me now than it <laughs> ever did. How about you? What thrills your soul? And I also, I remember, I remember a, a chorus that we, well, it wasn't a chorus, it was part of a hymn that we would sing on Sunday mornings and we would hit the stanza of the hymn. And I always remember everything musically because I was a, a musician and family of musicians. And that organ would, the, the pipe organ would absolutely light up when we would hit that chorus And people would sing at the top of their voice, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000. In my precious Lord I see. All that thrills my soul. David said in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? How could you even know us, God? Maybe that's where wonder needs to start for you, it, but it needs to start someplace. Because if there's no room for wonder in your life, there's no place for worship. So Father, would you just fill our hearts fresh and anew with wonder, with awe, that we might uh, worship you. Forget going through the motions and all of the rituals and all of the right hand movements and the stuff that we do and the substitute, the, sometimes the songs substitute for worship rather than enhance it. Oh Lord, bring us back to that place where we're simply thrilled with you. Your miraculous power. Teach us, teach us Lord, Gideon, confronted by your greatness, worshiped, and we should do no less. Thank you for it, Lord. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.